Welcome to the official podcast of DogsDaily.com, a Sports Illustrated channel. Gets to the edge. Tony Michelle will send the Dogs home to the championship game. If you're looking for the latest Georgia Bulldog news in football, basketball, baseball, and recruiting, then you're in the right place. Hosted by Dogs Daily Riders, Jeremiah Stoddard, Kyle Funderburg, and Jonathan Williams. Here's pitch. And high out into right center with some carry. It's got a chance. This ball is out of here. Tucker Bradley has won it. Just sit back, relax, and prepare yourself for these hot takes you're about to listen to. Welcome back to another episode of DogsDaily.com's podcast. Today it's just going to be me, Jeremiah Stoddard, and Jonathan Williams here. As Kyle, he's feeling a little under the weather today, so he's not with us. But we're still going to give you a great show and see what we can get. You know, hopefully we have some interesting things to talk about. I think there's a lot going on in general um, in the sporting world, so I think we got plenty of stuff to talk about here. We'll start off with the state of the SEC, right? So there's a lot of stuff going on in the SEC in general. A lot of coaching changes, a lot of stuff going on with uh, recruiting issues, speaking of Tennessee there, and a lot of changes as far as the transfer portal opening up this year, a little bit different. So it'll be kind of interesting to see how everything plays out here in the next couple of months going into the 2021 season. So we'll start off with just Tennessee as a whole, because I know that's the hot button topic right now. So everyone knows they've gotten in a lot of trouble. They've gotten rid of their entire coaching staff pretty much at this point. So Pruitt is gone. They've gotten rid of their AD. They actually hired a new AD as of today, I believe. They hired Danny White as the new athletic director. He's from UCF. He was athletic director before he came over to Tennessee now. So hopefully he can kind of turn that part of it, everything around. But just walk me through what's going on in Tennessee right now, Jonathan. Well, I mean, there's just so much to unpack when you're talking about Tennessee this week. Because, I mean, it was just a bombshell that got dropped this week. They start rumblings are starting that Tennessee's about to get hit with some recruiting violations and the fact that the recruiting violations that they that were committed ended up being they were handing players money in McDonald's bags. It's just it's just Tennessee in a nutshell for me. And it's just crazy to me. The crazy part to me is, you know, usually when someone cheats, they end up doing really well, they end up winning or whatnot, like he's like we talked about with LSU. They got hit with some violations after they won a national championship. But then you have Tennessee gets hit with recruiting violations, paying recruits to try and get them to come to their school. And they're having three or four win seasons and just being at the bottom level of the SEC. So it's just hysterical to me that you get hit, that you attempt, you cheat, but yet it doesn't even result in anything, not even being competitive in the SEC. You're at the bottom level down there with Vanderbilt and just being non-existent almost. I mean, their highlight of the season this past year was probably – leading Georgia at halftime, and that's probably the peak of their season, and that ended up in a loss. And so it's it's just weird to me how you get hit with violations like this, but yet there's no results of anything or anything of significance that came out of it. Right. You don't even benefit from the cheating of it. I, that was that was a big thing to me. I know you and I talked about that a little bit ago before we jumped on here, and that's not something you usually see. So in, in this situation, too, it, it's literally – uh, you, there's a quote on here, and it's from uh, Dan Patrick talked about like everything with Tennessee. And they said you literally had a bag man, right? You made the, the yeah. comment of get the bag or you the bag guy, the bag man, everything like that with the money. So they were literally handing out cash to these kids. But think about a couple months back, we talked about this at some point before ourselves. They were riding a high coming into this season, right? Like early May, back at that time, they were I think they had 26 commits, which you usually only have 25 like to sign anyway. So they were like above that margin. They had all these kids signing coming to the school, and they were they were riding this high. Everybody thought they were going to be this this powerhouse coming in the SEC East. Everyone was expecting them to be good, and I think they were expecting to be good. They were trying to cheat and win, you know. Clearly at this point, that was their goal, right? Like. It kind of made a little bit more sense when we were wondering, how are they getting all of these kids to decide to come to the school this early, like at this point in the, in the recruiting process? And within a short period of time, it was like two week period of time. You had a ton of people committing to the University of Tennessee. It was interesting. I was sitting there baffled by it on that part, just trying to figure out what was going on inside the doors over there. Clearly, now we know they had a literal bag man and they were giving cash to these kids in McDonald's bags. 
with I guess with their Big Mac. I don't know. I guess that's <laughs> a little on the side. I don't I don't know. I haven't gone and gotten that bag from McDonald's myself, so I can't really say what that Happy Meal looks like. But that's what you expect us to win off of all that. And they once again they were expecting to win off of all that too. They were coming off of a season end where they won the last four games of the year or the last four or five games of the year. And then they were coming into the Georgia game and, you know, early in the season this year with an eight game win streak. And so everybody's sitting here looking at them being, you know, dominant. They're they're thinking they really are who they were trying to be. The recruiting class is stacking up to be a little bit better this year. They've got their coach there feeling very confident in. And all of a sudden they come into Athens. Like you said, they were leading a half. That game is a little deceiving if you go back and actually watch some of it. The, you know, there was the mistakes with Trey Hill having the bad snap early that led to a touchdown and stuff like that that happened and. Uh, we went for it on fourth and one, didn't get it. And so they got it on our side of the field and that gave them another touchdown there. So there was a lot of that going on that kind of led to that score line. So everyone was shocked to see that after that. Well, I, I don't think Georgia fans were shocked by it because I know I talked to a few people before that. We didn't expect them to hold that momentum. I didn't think we would lose that game. I didn't think there was any part. And if you look back at who they had beaten, they had beaten like Kentucky twice, South Carolina twice. Seems like that is who they had played. They hadn't played anybody of like, notoriety at that point in those eight games that they've won so that was the big you know high that they were riding all of a sudden after they ended up falling in the second half to Georgia they just continued to plummet at that point they lost like six games in a row I believe and all of a sudden they're no longer happy with their head coach this is the big big topic for me on the the whole Tennessee thing so it appears that this whole thing was a ploy to get rid of Pruitt because they extended him in the offseason after he had that solid recruiting coming in at that point. They were feeling good about it. They were up in the top rankings of recruiting back in May, I will note, because that's way too early in the recruiting process to really pay attention to that. But they were feeling really good about themselves. They extended their coach for several years. He now had a, I think, $13, $14 million buyout in his contract. So at this point, they don't like him anymore. They want to get rid of him. So they start investigating their own program. They hired private investigators to come in and figure out what was going on with their program and to find some dirt on Pruitt that they could release to the media and a little bit here and there to try to have it gain some traction. And so they could get him out without having to pay him that contract buyout with his uh, firing him with cause. So they were trying to fire him with cause so they wouldn't have to pay him. Well, they found what they wanted to be able to do that with. Only problem was Big Brother found out about it as well because when that stuff starts popping up, they start seeing stuff on the radar and you start talking about recruiting violations and recruits coming in, the NCAA is going to look at it. Like uh, Brooks said on one of his videos this past week, hey, don't invite the cops to the trap house. You invited investigators into it, your program. They're going to, if they start finding some stuff, they're going to keep digging even further and they're going to start finding more. So when you think of it like that, when they go through this much of an effort to get rid of a head coach because they don't want to pay him his buyout, what does that say about a program? Really, to me, it's just they really didn't have any more trust, and it seems like there was definitely not a good relationship between Pruitt and the school, and that's not the first time we've heard about Pruitt having a shaky relationship with other people for. During his time at Georgia, there was discussions about how him and Mark Rick didn't have a good relationship, and really, it didn't seem like Pruitt had a good relationship with anybody on the Georgia coaching staff. It seemed like he was just wanted to be his one-man team as a defensive coordinator, and he wanted to run the show. And he got to run the show at Tennessee, and we now see where that has gotten. And so I just it's hard to see where Tennessee goes from here. You know, they have AD now, so that's something you can kind of build off. But trying to hire a head coach right now with like 20-something players now entering the portal with Henry Toe Toa, who's looking at probably being a first-round pick, two top running backs are also losing, and tons of other talent as well. I mean, it's hard to sell to a head coach, at least a substantial head coach that you would probably want to hire as to an SEC school to come and take on this job because you're going to have to start from the ground and build up at this point. You got to gain people's trust back. You got to gain it's it's an uphill battle for sure, and so it's going to be interesting to see who is willing to take on this challenge. And I don't know it. There's there's a big mess up in Knoxville that it's just there's a lot still a lot to unpack, and it's, it's a, still a developing story. Yeah, and I'll add this to that too. So I think as far as like getting a coach in there, to me, my pitch as Tennessee would be, listen, there's a lot of guys in the transfer portal right now that haven't officially left. So if you come in, if they get somebody at the right time, they can try to get some of those guys to stay. It has to be the right guy. They have to be confident in that. The coach has to be confident that he can come in there and convince those kids that haven't officially signed somewhere else or gone somewhere that they would have a a reason to stay. 
So there's still time to kind of fix that on there. My biggest thing is this. So Brooks uh, talked about this on his show the other day. I think he posted some of it on Twitter as well. When you're talking about these kids recruiting, being recruited and going to these places, he said he always tells people or recruits to to go to the school. Like you're you're being recruited by the school. You're committing to the school, not to commit to a coach because the head coach can change on a dime. The position coach can change on a dime, especially, like, especially if you come to somewhere like Georgia. We're always in or Alabama. Think about like Alabama. They lose offensive coordinator or defensive coordinator every single year, it feels like. And then you obviously lose position coaches the same way. Like that kind of stuff, that turnaround is going to happen. So you have to commit to the school. When I say that, though, think about this situation with Tennessee. You're committing to the school. The school just entirely uprooted and dug all this dirt up from their own program to get rid of the head coach right now. They were willing to drag the entire university through the mud to get rid of them not caring about the recruits that just signed back on early signing day, not worried about the kids that are committed to sign on national signing day next month, and not caring about the guys that are on the roster right now. To me, that's a program issue. That's not just a a head coaching issue that they, they just fixed all of a sudden. If I'm a kid, going back to you're committing to the school, the school has issues. The whole program has issues. If I'm a kid there, even if you get the right coach, I know I said this a second ago, the right coach can come in and do it. But now that I think about a little bit further through the conversation here, if I'm a kid that's there and I've decided to transfer already, to me, it's not going to matter what coach comes in there. I don't think I could make the decision to stay at that point. Yeah, and that goes back to something that J.J. Frazier talked to us about last week is when we were talking about, you know, what was something that really made you want to come to Georgia? And he talked about how he knew from the start of when he would enroll and even past when he would graduate that he knew that UGA would always welcome him and him in as family and it would always stay that way as a relationship. And that's probably a big thing for a lot of these kids. You know, these kids are moving all across the country. They're moving thousands of miles away from home for some people. You definitely want to feel like family in the place and the school that you're going to be attending. And if I'm looking at it right now myself, looking at Tennessee, it does not look like a family environment there. So that's that's hard to sell to recruits right now now i mean of course one thing you definitely can sell to recruits right now to tennessee is that hey we got 20 something players in the transport right now we got open spots for days if you want to come play for us we have we have a spot at running back we have i mean so and be a day one starter in yeah be a too. day one starter you get playing time in the sec from your freshman year until you want to leave so that's something you can sell but as far as players feeling comfortable at the university and feeling comfortable with the environment right now that's tough to sell, and that's that's a huge part in a lot of people for the recruitment process and finding a home for them. So, like I said, it, it's just going to be a tough battle over there in Knoxville. Yeah, and, and and when you talk about the different spots missing on there, just to focus on stuff, I know you talked about the two star running backs leaving too. They don't have a quarterback right now. Like they have they have a transfer coming in from Virginia Tech um, in Hendon Hooker, but they lost three quarterbacks in the transfer portal right now. They Garantano is going to, it looks like Washington State. Washington State. So Garantano is going to Washington State. Cason Hill is transferring as well. And then JT Trout is going to Colorado. Three quarterbacks. Gone all three the, got playing time also last all, season. All three were playing. So think about that. So the guys that they had on the field aren't going to be there anymore. Not like you would think that in that situation that like it was one especially two of them. If I'm the third one, I'm like, I'm going to stay and I'm going to play, right? Like, But no, they don't want to stay in that program. Once again, it goes back to the whole program having issues. And then you go down the list of just the wide receivers. They're losing five, six wide receivers, losing three offensive linemen. They're losing three defensive linemen. They're losing five different linebackers and one being a future first round pick in Henry To'oto'o. I mean, that's the whole program is leaving right now. That to me... Going back to what you said about the coach coming in and, and hopefully making a change on there and being able to turn the program around quickly or, or convince them that they can do that, they do have a chance to come in there and try to convince some of these guys to say that haven't officially left yet, but it's going to be a hard task to do, so it's not an, exactly an appealing job. But to add to that, as far as a coach being willing to do it, the athletic director is going to have to sit there and say, hey, by the way, we just completely uprooted our entire program to get rid of the last guy so we didn't have to pay him his buyout. Why don't you come over here and we'll treat you different? I mean, that to me, that's not going to be very convincing. I'm not going to trust that program on that aspect of it either. So I just don't see that being an appealing job either. Yeah, it's just and going on to the quarterbacks, though, I mean, so we have the Brendan Hooker guy from Virginia Tech who 
I mean, he's probably looking at, he's like, oh, well, shoot, they got three quarterbacks heading into the transfer portal right now. My only battle right now is Harrison Bailey, who's a freshman last year. He got a little bit of playing time, didn't look great. Looks like I'm the star of the show in Knoxville right now, and he literally will be the star of the show if he pans out because there's literally nobody left. And so he may be looking at the situation like, hey, this is pretty sweet for me. I mean, I don't care who the head coach is at this point. Just give me a couple guys I can throw the ball to, and I'll make make myself look good, and I'll get myself to the draft. So maybe with a quarterback that's feeling good about himself, maybe. I don't know. You can find something there. Get an offensive coordinator in there who believes in him and the, the quarterback who believes in the offensive coordinator. Maybe you can have something there, but... There's not, there's just not a whole lot building up for them right now, and they'll be scrapping for pieces just to be able to have any type of wins next season. I mean, you're probably looking at 0 and 10 next season at, by the looks of things now. I would definitely say their best bet to win any games in the SEC, especially when they play like Vanderbilt, because they're also going to be in the same rebuilding mode. Because now they've literally put themselves on that level with Vanderbilt right now. That's where they're at because they were already struggling with what they had. The people leaving. Those guys were still losing a ton in the SEC. They lost a ridiculous number of games after that Georgia game coming through. This would be my selling point if I'm if I'm the AD and I'm talking to a, a potential head coach hire right now. This is my selling point. All those guys are leaving. You're coming into a program at the perfect time to fix that. Here's the thing. The transfer portal is going to be more active than ever before. We have plenty of scholarships available right now. You have your pick of the whole litter right now as far as people leaving every program. Georgia's got people transferring out. Alabama's going to have people transferring out. Clemson's going to... Everyone's going to have people transferring out because of COVID stuff this year. They've all been given an extra year of eligibility they can take advantage of. So you have these guys that would be seniors that could technically come back another year. You could reach out and have them come into the program with that extra year, give you the veteran experience in those different position groups that you need it. You can go out and basically construct a new team this year. Like that, that would be my selling point. Now, there's obviously going to be some restrictions and stuff applied in different areas of that. So it's not going to be super simple, as I may have just made it sound overall. But still, that that would be my selling point if I'm them, because you're not going to sell me on coming to a program that you y'all just completely uprooted everything to get rid of the last guy. You could potentially sell me on the fact that I can come in and turn the program around quick because I can recruit in a way that no one's ever been able to recruit before. That would be my selling point. Yeah, but then also something I would also point out if I'm a head coach looking at this is that there's obvious fans obviously expect more from their SEC schools more than any other conference from a fan's perspective because just look at the coaching changes since Kirby Smart has gone at UGA. Gus Malzahn, gone. Muschamp, gone. McElwain, gone. Arkansas had a head coaching change, hired Sam Pittman. Missouri's gone through a head coaching change. Hugh Freeze was out a few years ago. He's he's now at Liberty. They ha- Ole Miss had a head coaching change. So there's always people leaving and going from the ACC as a head coaching position. So if you're also looking at a head coach's perspective, looking at this Tennessee job, you're also thinking, okay, I could be the greatest head coach ever if I come here and turn things around for Tennessee and I get them back to a winning program. But then also looking at like, well, shoot, do I have like two or three years to do this? Or do I have five or six to give me some time and I can get my guys in and I can start getting Tennessee in the process? So. It, it all just depends on how they're looking at it and how the admin at Tennessee want to go about it on whether or not they're like, hey, we're hungry for wins. you got to get this thing rolling right now. you got to start winning games by next season. We want at least five. Or if you want to give us some time, like, hey, get your feet wet for a little bit. Start recruiting some guys so you can get, get, get you some coaches that you want to work with, and then we'll start going from there. Or you just want to come out guns blazing in this first year and see what you can do. So that's also just depending on how they want to work things out. I mean, I would assume that they, I say this, but this is the logical way of thinking it, right? Like Tennessee isn't exactly the most logical state in general, definitely not the most logical program as we've all seen. That would be the logical thing to say is, you know, a coach is going to have to come in here. They clearly have to rebuild in a way that people have not had to rebuild before. So you've got to give this new coach some time. Pruitt was there for what, two seasons? This was the second season and they just got rid of him. And yes, you could see some issues there. And I think there's a lot of underlying stuff. Think back to two years ago when he got hired that um, Aaron Murray went on air and said, you know, there's issues. He's not a leader. He struggles in these aspects. He doesn't get like he doesn't work well with other people. And then you had Paul Feinbaum rip him to shreds on it, and that which has obviously surfaced a ton now. And Aaron Murray clearly was right in that battle. And he said he didn't give two rips what Aaron Murray thought about something he doesn't know anything about because he never played with Pruitt. But he was you got to think when a guy like Aaron Murray is talking about it, he's one of the better quarterbacks to come out of Georgia, one of the better quarterbacks to play there. So 
he clearly like he's got he knows what's going on. Yeah, he's going to be in the know. He's going to know what's going on. So when he comes out and says something like that, you should probably listen a little bit to it. Yeah, he didn't play with Pruitt directly, but that doesn't matter. He's clearly going to be connected in that program to know there's some issues there. So you got to know that that's the thing. But they didn't give him very much time, whether or not it was because of that or not. He clearly didn't have much time. They thought they he was, you know, heaven sent. And that's why they gave him a contract extension before the season even started. But then everything started to unravel. So I don't know how patient they are going to be because of the type of program and what we're talking about. Now, they do have a new AD. So maybe that would help that part of it. So maybe they'll be a little bit more patient. But to me, you have to be more patient with this coach coming in. Because like you said, they're they're being stripped down to nothing. You know, at all these skill positions where that's where your production is going to come from on offense and, and to score. And in the SEC, the defenses are really good. And now the offenses are starting to take off a little bit more. You're going to need to be able to score if you're going to actually be competitive in college football in general. You clearly have to score to be competitive in college football in general. Now, that's just the way it's it's gone. So you want to see that coach get a little bit more time there to actually be able to build that back up. But like you said, in, in the SEC in general, there's been a lot of coaching changes this year. Like this year, you mentioned a couple of them, but South Carolina hired uh, Shane Beamer from Oklahoma. He was the offensive coordinator there. He took over as the head coach now that Will Muschamp is gone. And then you had Auburn, who got rid of uh, Gus Malzahn, who just hired Brian Harrison, Harrison and he was uh, Boise State head coach over there. So that was a pretty good hire there. You got a head coach to come over there. So he's got experience in the program being a head coach. So maybe he'll be able to do something at Auburn there. Uh, and then you have Vanderbilt who got rid of um, Derek Mason, which personally I like Derek Mason or Derek Mason overall, but he had been there for a few years. That program is still at the bottom of the list. So I'm not exactly shocked to see that change either. Um, but they just hired Clark Lee, who was Notre Dame's defensive coordinator. So we'll see what he can do there. Once again, it'll be interesting to see how much time he gets there to turn the program around because they've been dealing with the coaches at the bottom of the barrel, you know, for a decade, you know, or more. They've just never been that program in football. So it'll be interesting to see how long he gets. And obviously Tennessee got rid of Pruitt. We don't know who's going to go there. We just talked about all of that. So there's no telling there. And then something that just came out today, right before we went on air, we saw this was Alabama just hired Bill O'Brien as their offensive coordinator and quarterback coach, which is a huge hire. And you made the comment a minute ago. It's I'll let you kind of start on this. How does Nick Saban Always get the guy he wants. Like, how do you go out and you get you get Bill O'Brien, a former head coach of the Texans in the NFL, to be your offensive coordinator? I mean, Kirby Smart said it himself in an interview he did that I watched. Who wouldn't want to work for Nick Saban? You know, he was talking about when, in 2010, back when Georgia offered him a defensive coordinating job, he was like, you know, do I pick things up, move myself over to UGA, sit at a defensive coordinating spot over there, or do I stay with Nick Saban, who's just tearing things up right now in the SEC and is about to just hit, I mean, he was on a roll at that point, and that's when things were really building up for him, so who wouldn't want to come work for Nick Saban? He's arguably, no, not even arguably, he is the greatest college football coach in history. He just won another national championship this season. He's looking to win another one this season, depending on who, how his offense is going to be looking with the loss of a quarterback and a lot of the star receivers. But he's never missing a beat with his team. And so every year he's in the contention for a college football playoff. So as someone like Bill O'Brien, who where things obviously did not work out with the Texans in the NFL, I mean, you had Deshaun Watson and it just seemed like his offense was non-existent at some points. If you're trying to get back up on your feet, why not go work for Nick Saban, be his offensive coordinator, quarterback's coach? Because, I mean, Steve Sarkeesian did it. He went to the NFL, coached for the Falcons for a little bit. Things didn't really work out there. He went to Alabama, and now he is one of the highly touted offensive coordinators in the country. Now he's the head coach at Texas. So great move by Alabama, and this is a good – it'll be interesting to see how it pans out for Bill O'Brien to see where – if this will build off to anything else or if this is going to end in utter failure again for himself. But, yeah. yeah. I would say I'm, I'm curious to see how that plays out too, because like we said, he was he was a guy that had already meet, made that jump to the NFL and had been a head coach and stuff. So it'll be interesting to see him go back as a coordinator, see if he stays for one, two, maybe three seasons. I think he might be a guy that because of his past, because we've seen him as a head coach in the NFL at this point, you may get to see him stay at Alabama a little bit longer than we're used to seeing head or offensive coordinators or assistant coaches stay at Alabama. Because I think he definitely I, there's to me there's no way that he leaves after one season because 
once again, you've got that history, so you would expect him to need to put a little bit more together than just one season, especially when it's coming from a system like Alabama, who literally just produces coaches, you know, from the assistant level up to head coaches around everywhere. So it could be a system thing if he has a good year next year. Plus, that whole offense was incredible this year. Yeah, they're going to be rebuilding some, but Alabama's always got the guys to set back up on there. Think about Mac Jones. He was behind two guys that are now in the NFL. He was, he, and he's the one that won the Heisman. He was behind Hertz and behind Tua. So those guys were, and there's a picture that has been all over the internet the past couple of months too, and it's just a picture of all three of them before a game, like warming up, and they're side by side, and it just doesn't feel real. You look at those two quarterbacks that are playing in the NFL, and then you look at him who just won a Heisman. He was behind both of those guys. So that that tells me they've got people just ready to go. You know, they've, they've got their players ready to step up, and yeah, they lost Waddle, and they lost Smith this year, and they're losing Najee Harris. So... They do lose somebody big at each position. Um, or he, Mac Jones didn't win the Heisman. I think I said he won the Heisman. He didn't win the Heisman. Devontae Smith won the Heisman, so I, I apologize for that. And I definitely did not mean to disrespect Devontae Smith on that because the dude deserved it. <laughs> I'll say that right now. So he's the one that came out and took over this. He was in Heisman contention like the other guys were. So he was at that level, and he probably put together one of the best seasons that we've seen an Alabama quarterback have. And I'm including... A.J. McCarron and all of those guys in, I'm including the guys that he sat behind as far as the statistical season that he had. Now, part of that is probably because of the way Alabama's offense was this year. They kind of changed. They've gone a little bit more offensive heavy like the rest of the country has. So that definitely helped him there. But he's got a lot of talent and he was able to do all of that. So I think Bama's going to be okay as far as the guys to step up. So I do think that they're going to be competitive next year, even though they're losing those guys. So I will say with what you were saying about Nick Saban going for another national championship this year, he's definitely going to be in contention. He's always in contention because he's always in the top three recruiting classes. He's always got those guys ready to go. I'll say that that is something that you'll never doubt with him. He's always got the players ready there. So I think that Bill O'Brien's going to have the people to work with, the players to work with to put something together. It'll be interesting to see how long he stays. I kind of went on a long rant to say that he's going to be there for a couple seasons probably, but maybe two or three seasons from him that we don't always get to see from it. Um, plus, the transfer portal this year is wide open. So if they are lacking in any position, all they have to do is go get somebody. And once again, who doesn't want to go play for Bama? Yep, and that's the thing. Who wouldn't? I would definitely want to if I was being if I was a high school kid being recruited. I would definitely want to be go play for Nick Saban because you're pretty much given a golden ticket to the NFL if you're if you play for him and you start and you do what do what your job is supposed to be. So I would definitely want to go play for him, but. Speaking of the NFL, you know, we it's been announced now that there is no NFL combine and that's just it's going to be really interesting to see because that hurts a lot of kids and it may also help some other kids. You know, they we're still going to have pro days, you know, UGA will have their pro day, every school will have their pro day, I assume, or at least I hope for all these kids that are trying to go to the NFL. And the good thing about having a pro day is it's going to groom these players more to just show their strengths more than the NFL Combine would, where you might show more weaknesses than you would want to at the NFL Combine. Whereas here we were talking about before the show how these wide receivers, they get to have, catch balls from all their quarterbacks that they played with, and then they get to be in their home facilities and whatnot. But it's still a big deal. I mean, it's the national stage of the NFL Combine. All eyes are on you running the 40-yard dash. All eyes are on you. You can make a million dollars just by running a, a sub four or five 40 yard dash and like Tyson Campbell could have easily done that if he would have went to the NFL combine run a 4.340 and GMs are going to be drooling over a cornerback that can run a 4.340 it'll be interesting to see how it plays out I really hate it for a lot of the kids because it probably did cost some people some money or even just a shot at all at an NFL roster but hopefully these pro days will still help these players out yeah and I'll add to that as well as far as like I'll say where it can be the downfall for some players is it's some of the players that were looking to come out there and stand out in front of the other guys. So that, that's the biggest thing. Is So now you're not being compared directly side by side to the same guys that you're being drafted. Like the people are looking at saying, hey, I need an inside linebacker. I've got a group of inside linebackers right here. Let me see how they look running these drills side by side. I can have that comparison tool. So the players that would stand out there are going to be the ones that take the hit in that. Now, I will say a lot of players, I think more players will benefit overall than, than necessarily be hurt. And my reasoning for that is this. So one, like you said, with the wide receivers, they're going to get to work out with their quarterback. The quarterback gets to work out with their wide receivers. So there's that that uh, chemistry there that they'll be able to look better on tape because they're not dealing with somebody's routes that they don't necessarily feel comfortable. They don't know how, like, how they're going to run their you know slant or whatever they're going to do. They don't know their speed necessarily. Now, that's where people stand out in the combine because if they can go up there, they don't know those things and they make perfect throws or they make incredible catches. They're running sharp routes. You know, that that's where they stand out. But 
players will be able to kind of hide behind that a little bit when they get to work out with their guys. Now, I think the, like you said, they're on the national stage. And so they're still going to be compared like the same way overall, as far as the NFL scouts watching them. The atmosphere is different, right? It's like you don't go to a different place that you've never been. You get to work out with the guys you've always worked out with. You get to, if there's something that you don't do very well, you can work on that and they, they won't see it if you mess up as much. Um, now I'm sure they'll record everything fully. So like if they make an error in a drill or something like that, they'll, they'll be able to notice, but you can kind of cover up a little bit more when you're looking at like putting together a big performance in the the combine. The biggest comparison is going to be like the side by side part that they don't have to go up against. And so they don't necessarily have to look a little bit worse in that position group than those players because the people will have to put tape side by side and watch. And it doesn't show the same way as like, and in person, you can kind of see the burst of players a little bit different. You can kind of see those movements, those fluid motions and stuff. It, it kind of plays a big factor in that aspect of it. And I think that I think there's going to be more people benefit overall than you're going to see come down hill a little bit on that part. Yeah, the only thing I'll miss is that I was super excited to watch Ben Cleveland go through the NFL Combine because he was just about to absolutely crush every single statistic, every single record, it seemed like, with him. You know, he was probably going to run a sub-5, 40-yard dash. He was going to absolutely demolish the bench press. And so it'll just be players like that that I'll miss not getting to watch just absolutely crush their NFL Combine. And and then, of course, um, I think Brooks wrote the article about players that um, are going to really hurt from not going to NFL Combine. And one of them was Aziz Ojolari because he is on the lighter side of, in regards to weight for a defensive end and an edge rusher. And so the NFL Combine was going to be a really great opportunity for him to show off his athleticism, his bend, and his quickness. And so now he doesn't necessarily get to do that. But, of course, he'll still get to display all of the goods that he brings with himself to an NFL team at his pro day. But just – talking about how that can lead to millions of more dollars. I mean, NFL Combine could have possibly meant millions of more dollars for Zito Dwyer now. Nonetheless, he will still getting a, be getting a major paycheck come draft day. Yeah, and I'll add to that too for guys, thinking about guys like that. So the any spot you get drafted at, especially in the first round, the, the salaries are slotted. So if you fall one spot, you lose money. Like literally you can lose a million dollars by a couple draft spots in the first round. So that kind of stuff does play a huge factor in that. Um, I think that that Aziz is still going to go out and obviously make his money. He's definitely a first rounder, but he could he maybe he could have gone a couple rounds higher if he could have gone side by side to some of these other outside linebackers and shown his quickness and his bend, like you were saying. So that kind of stuff will play a factor there. It'll be interesting to see where these guys go. I will agree with you that I am extremely disappointed that I don't get to see Ben Cleveland side by side on these. I mean, this guy, like he was clocked last season, not this past one. We just finished with the season before he was clocked running, I think, 21 miles an hour in practice. So and this man is 300 and something pounds, massive dude. You don't see guys like that moving in that motion. And he can, he's not the quickest as far as lateral movement. So his like three cone shuffle and stuff, he may not have wanted to run or he may not like look great on, but like his 40 yard dash, when he's going in a straight line, the man's going to be moving. And then you look at the bench press, this man, I know that Brooks said this too. He's looking to put up 50 reps. We're talking 225 pounds. Easily. This man's trying to put up 50 reps. I could not even no. We won't that's talk about how many strong. I could. <laughs> that's country strong. The that's man, the man is something special there, and I do hate that we don't get to see that. I am excited to see where those guys go and how it all plays out overall. So I'll definitely be tuned in to see all that. Or that'll be something fun to kind of watch with the Georgia football program and everything that way. So to flip a little bit on our conversation here, exciting to see the Georgia basketball team to kind of turn stuff around a little bit, right? So the past two games we played, we played Ole Miss and then we played Kentucky last night. By the way, today is Thursday. January 21st and so last night they played against Kentucky on January 20th and they came up made a buzz or not a buzzer beater but they scored to take the lead by one point with 1.3 seconds left on the clock uh, against Kentucky which is snapping a 14 game losing streak to Kentucky dating back to win 2014 I think that's a huge win it's a momentum shifter what have you seen that's been a little different from this program in the last couple of games compared to how they started the SEC play Two things, and this is two things that my high school coaches, I had three different high school coaches through my high school career, and all three preached the same thing. If you want to win basketball games, you better win the turnover battle, and you better shoot your free throws and make them. And those are two things that Georgia has definitely improved upon in the last two games compared to the ones before. And that ugly loss to Arkansas, we could not hit a free throw in the in the Auburn game. We couldn't hit a free throw, and in both those games, I do believe we lost a turnover battle. But in these last few games, we have won both of those things, and we consistently hit our free throws. And so that's one thing I've seen. They cleaned up their game a little bit. they gotten some confidence at the free throw line finally. And so those have been two big pieces. And going on about 
Kentucky, you know, for Georgia basketball, we talk about, um, or in Georgia football, we talk about Kirby Smart's got to get over the hump, and that hump is Alabama. For the longest time, that hump for Georgia basketball has been beating Kentucky. Now, of course, this is probably John Calipari's worst team in his coaching career at Kentucky, but it doesn't matter. I mean, anybody, it doesn't matter if Saban had his worst Alabama football team in history. If we beat Bama, we, Georgia fans are celebrating and they're jumping up and down for joy because finally they beat Alabama and it feels like you finally get over that hump. So beating Kentucky is a huge deal. And at this point with Tom Crean, you know, those early struggles, things were not looking good at all. You get blown out by Arkansas and people are like, what are we doing? What is Tom Crean doing? We don't know if he's answering anymore. Every SEC game at this point feels like a must-win game for Tom Crean. And that Kentucky one was definitely a must-win because with it being Kentucky's worst team in years, if you don't win that one, I, I don't know how you build any momentum off of that because that was like your golden shot at finally beating them. And so that's another huge momentum boost for them. They beat Ole Miss. That's another solid win. Get things going in the right direction. Finally got some guys with confidence. You got KD Johnson bringing the juice when he comes out on the court. It's just overall confidence boosting for them at this point. And that's what you've seen over these last two games. And hopefully that'll continue to build off because you, you're playing your biggest, your team's biggest rival in Florida in the upcoming week. And that's going to be a huge game for Tom Green and the basketball team. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll add two more things to, to what you said as far as it's been a big difference for me in the way everything's looked as well. So my two big things that have changed with this team in the last two games compared to how it has been in the first four games of SEC play are one on offense. The three-point shooting has been better. We've been winning that margin on their, I'll say three, not even just offense, but just three-point shooting in general. So we've been winning that margin in these games as well. So even against Kentucky, we didn't have a great shooting percentage from three. We, we shot 25%. We went four for 16. The biggest thing in that game was Kentucky. Kentucky could not, we, our perimeter defense has improved massively, right? So that's the biggest difference for me is our perimeter defense has been huge. So we've, we held them to one for 13. Some of their shots just weren't great shots. I'll, I'll give you that, but they were, we switched to what we've been running more of a zone defense. And so we've been closing out a lot quicker on the perimeter when these guys get the ball. So they're not having open shots as much. They're getting there quickly, putting a hand up in front of their face and making it a tough shot and making a contested shot. So that's the big difference against Kentucky there with one for 13, and they shot 7.7% there. And then you flip over to the Ole Miss game, and Ole Miss was 31%, which is not bad for three points, to be honest with you. So that's still good at seven for 22, but that's a ton of shots. In that same game, I think they were one for 13 in the first half, if I remember correctly, something like that in the first half. So they couldn't hit one in the first half. So the five that they made in the second, or six they made in the second half, kind of put them on that run and that's where it kind of made that game a little interesting late that that was kind of what sparked their run they started hitting those threes and so when you start putting up three points after three points the points start to add up and you start to collect you you know catch up to somebody which is where they went on their run to catch up in that game but when you look at the other side of it georgia was nine for 15 at 60 percent from three that was the big difference in both of those games it's been um it's been katie johnson hitting those threes he had two I think it was two for five against uh, Kentucky. So we only had four, by the way, so that he had two of those. And and then P.J. Horn had two, the other two against Kentucky as well. So those two guys came through big. And they were both just, if you watched it, they were coming down the court in transition threes when they would hit them. And they were deep threes. So they were just showing off the range. They were showing off that. And I know you've mentioned before that the Georgia identity, what Tom Crane, seen, Tom Crane seems to want is that three-point shooting offense, right? Katie Johnson's the guy to really help with that because the few games that he's been able to play, he's been hitting them. So he's been putting those from way downtown and just draining them on there. So the offensive side, the three points been better, but also defensive, our three point perimeter defense has been a lot better. And a big stat line for me was like you said, winning in like the turnover margins and stuff like that's always big. But in that turnover margin, if you look at the, the turnovers that we have, we had 10 steals against Kentucky. One thing we talked about with J.J. Uh, Frazier last week was the, the team didn't look like they had that motivation later in the games. They, they, they kind of come downhill, the, whether it's because they were young or whether it's because of a, a leadership thing on the sideline there. It, it didn't really, they weren't showing that effort full for the full 40 minutes of the game. One player we could see doing that was Katie Johnson, right? Now, these past two games that I've watched, the effort's been there through the late part of it. So yeah, we've had issues where we started to kind of fall a little bit. They started going on a run. We were up, you know, by we had a double-digit lead against Kentucky. They came back and took a six-point lead on us, but they never let it slip more than six points. I'll point that out. 
and then they stayed in that game. They didn't let Kentucky went on a run. They answered our run. They came back on a run to take that lead, but we we flipped it back. We started stealing the ball. Our defense was there. We were getting in their face. We weren't letting them have free shots under the rim. We were playing more physical. Like the, our defense has really stepped up because of our effort level. I think that's been the biggest difference is effort level, man. It, it's been huge. You know, talking about the three-point shot, and we've talked about how Georgia's biggest enemy has been letting teams go on these long runs, and they just get prolonged, and it just sucks energy out of us. And being able to hit the three-point shot is a great way to flip the momentum back to your side or kind of just mellow it out. We've seen how in the transition of football, how it used to be like, if you have a stout defense, you're going to run the league, you, and that's how that's a ticket to get to the national championship, get to the Super Bowl, whatever. If you have a stout defense, Defense is better than offense. Now you're kind of getting to see the transition of how an offense is starting to trump defenses. You know, you see Oklahoma, who took Georgia to the wire, who had who Georgia that year had a really good defense and an okay offense, whereas Oklahoma's opposite. They took Georgia to the wire in the Rose Bowl, and now Alabama, of course, has this unstoppable offense. And it seems like now that's the way to go in football. And you've seen that in basketball, whereas before, like 10 years ago, it was you got to have a guy like Shaq. You got to have a guy like Dirk Nowitzki who can bang down low, hit the fadeaway post shot, who can get rebounds for it. Whereas now, it's do you have a Steph Curry who can pull up from three point range and hit the big shots? And that's a big part of the game. And if you don't have, if you can't hit three point shots, you're really not going to be winning many games, as George has found that out during the season. So if you can't hit your shots from behind the arc, or at least you don't even have to hit nine or 10 a game, if you can just at least stay with the other team, shoot about the same percentages with them or a little better, then you're going to be in pretty good shape more than most likely in basketball. And so that's the transition that we've seen in basketball. And that's just how the game goes. And if they can continue to shoot well from behind the arc, I think they'll be able to keep this momentum going. They'll be able to scrap out a few more wins. I don't know if they'll go on a long win streak or anything like that, but I do think they'll find themselves in more games this season and be more competitive like they have these past couple of games. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll say that we talked about this kind of with JJ uh, last week as well with the, the way the, the team is structured. We are a little undersized as far as like the way SEC teams usually look. So it is something that has paid dividends. Like it, it's been an issue for us. You can, you've seen it kind of weigh on us as far as not having like that big guy in the paint because you still, even though you don't have to have like that shack necessarily, you don't need that guy. You still need somebody with some size because when you're dealing with in the paint, these guys are coming up and, and they're making you pay for it when you don't have that guy because you can't always take that three-point shot. Look back to last night against Kentucky. Right before the game went up, right, we had that inbound pass, right? Well, the play that led to the inbound pass was a, another block shot for Georgia. We're going in for a layup, goes up, the ball gets swatted out of bounds. And it wasn't even close. It was, you know, it was just completely swatted. It was nowhere near going to go in over the guy playing in the paint there. So, that was still a big factor. Now, yes, we ended up coming back and winning with an inbound pass to uh, with Horn going up and, and making the layup underneath. That one was kind of scary, too, if you watched it. He got it and inbounded it, and they couldn't handle it at first, and so he was still able to get it back up. And I will say that he was able to get around the big defenders inside the paint right there himself for that game-winning shot. But it still shows that it's an issue in the SEC to not have some size and not necessarily just height, but just some stature, too, like just some a big guy, a heavier guy, somebody that can kind of push people around and not get bullied in the paint because you still need that in the SEC. But you're definitely right. Three-point shooting has become the way the SEC is or the way basketball is. It's like you said, Steph Curry in the NBA and all those players taking deep threes. You have Trey Young for Atlanta just lining them up from midcourt just about it feels like. It's on the logo. I've seen Trey Young and Steph Curry take shots from the logo in games. Like they're on the logo. That's insane. So that's the, the biggest way. I think it's kind of like, football in the same aspect they're looking for those home runs quickly you know you go for those deep passes you go for those big explosive plays in football to kind of get the momentum shifting the same thing with the three-point shot it gets momentum shifting and going that way my biggest thing that I don't like that's disappeared from it is you see either three-point shots or you're in the you're, you're going for that layup you're going for the dunk those points that's how the offense runs at this point you don't see as many elbow jumpers anymore and I think that's a part that is missing from the game at this point now that might be the you know the old soul in me saying you know, back in my day, this is how we used to play kind of thing. But, and I know I'm young when I say that too, so I know that's going to get some laughs there. But I'm just saying that that part's been missing and you don't see that shot at near as much in the elbow jumper. And I think somebody could come up there and, and light it up. But when you're a little bit smaller of a team like Georgia is, you would think that that would be a little bit bigger of their game. Because if you're having an issue where you're coming from a game against, what was it, Arkansas with 14 block shots, 
you would think they might want to hit some more elbow jumpers and, and take those two point shots instead of necessarily trying to drive as much. But that's that's just kind of like my TED talk on that one. But it's kind of slipping away from you don't see those as much. Yeah, and talking about the elbow mid range shot, the last guy I can really remember that was really consistently hitting those was Juwan Parker. And I know that JJ talked about him and how he him and I him and Juwan were really good friends back in um college when they both played at Georgia. And yeah, you really don't see it a whole lot in the game. But talking about a big man and we're t- we're talking about where does Tom Crean go from here like what do you what is your outlook on the season you have some things going for you now you have some good guard play now you you don't have to just rely on severe wheeler to be your primary ball handler you have Katie Johnson now who's getting in the mix you have Tamani Kamara who's your stretch four guy who can take it out on the perimeter drive and attack off the dribble and so now if I'm Tom Crean I'm looking okay I'm really piecing things together now I have something to build off all I need is that guy in the paint. And I was watching Michigan basketball the other night, and something that I've always recognized when I watch like Big Ten basketball or any of those teams are always in the mix for the March Madness title is that they've always there's always a team that's got this big, massive white dude who's seven one, has a last name that you can't pronounce because he's from <laughs> Russia or somewhere over there. They it's just a guy that clunks down in the paint. He sticks his arms up and he defends the rim and he grabs rebounds and occasionally he, he throws down a massive dunk over someone and he gets put on Sports Center, and that's all you really need. We don't we're not asking Tom Crane to go out there and get a guy that's going to drop twenty five every night in the paint. You just need a guy who was like Derek Obede, like Mark Fox had during his time at UGA. You just need a long, lanky guy who can hold his own weight down in the paint, stick his long arms up, deflect shots, grab rebounds, and just protect the rim. And that's all you need. And he recently did get a commit this past week from a kid who um, I think is like 6'10", 6'9", or something like that. Now, he's only 195 pounds right now. Of course, he'll get in the weight training program, and hopefully he'll beef up a little bit. So now maybe he is piecing things together, and he can if he can find that center that he can play and he can protect the rim, maybe Tom Crean can finally piece together a complete team, whereas now in the past two years it's just been, I have some guards that can shoot the ball, and we're either hit or miss any other game, and it's either going to look really good at times or it's going to look really, really bad at times. So yeah. maybe he has a trajectory that he can build off of now. Yeah, and, and we kind of talked about this last week as far as like the roster that we have. We have a younger roster overall. So when you look at needing that one piece, because I don't think Georgia's that far from being able to be like a decent team in the SEC overall. I think that they're missing maybe that, that piece could be the difference because we have the guards that can shoot really well. They need some help in the paint. So that one recruit coming in this next year, could be a big difference in that aspect of the game. You get him in, yeah, he'll be a freshman, but freshmen in basketball, they're supposed to play and be effective immediately. It's a different sport than when you're looking at football or other sports like that. So you expect a freshman to be able to come in and make a difference. So he's coming in. If he puts on some weight and gets you know over 200, maybe 215 even, puts on 15, 20 pounds, and he's got that you know 6'9", 6'10", frame, he's going to be able to do exactly what you're talking about from the get-go because you don't need him to go out there and score a bunch. You need him to go out there and play some defense under the rim and get you some offensive rebounds so you can make those those game-winning shots off of an offensive rebound or something like that when you need it to be competitive, to go on like a tournament-type run. So that leads me to my next question here, though. My final question, we'll wrap it up with this. That's a big thing for next season to make us more competitive then. Can Georgia be competitive in the SEC this season with who they have Coming off the momentum we have of the two SEC wins, no, not against the best teams in the conference for sure, but still big wins, getting the Kentucky win, momentum shifted our way. Can they now carry that momentum and be competitive in the SEC this season? I think they've definitely proved that within the last two games. They've answered that question. Yes, they absolutely can be competitive in the SEC, but it all is just going to predicate off of the things that we've talked about these last five minutes is... Are you going to win the turnover battle? Are you going to protect the ball? Are you going to hit your free throws? And can you hit the three-point shot consistently? If those things keep rolling for them, absolutely they can be competitive in the SEC. And you can, and like I said, you may not win every game, but you can at least be competitive. You can be in there. You can at least be in the fight, and it's not going to end up like your game against Arkansas did. So, yes, they absolutely can be competitive this season. And another thing that I'll add on with turnovers and free throws is that when you are undersized like Georgia is, you have to team rebound and you have to secure the ball and you got to limit second chance points, especially in the SEC when a team has a big guy down low. If they're just racking up second chance points all game, you're going to get demolished and you're going to have no chance at surviving in the game. So if they can team rebound, protect the ball, win the turnover battle, and hit their free throws down the stretch, they can absolutely be competitive in the SEC this season. Absolutely. And we still have about 12 games or so 
left on the schedule to do that. We're only two and four. Being able to get those two wins back to back has put us where now it's not looking so daunting of a task. Two and four is a lot of room to turn around when you still have 12 plus games to play in the SEC. And then you still get a chance to play in the SEC tournament and stuff at that point. So there's still a lot of opportunity up in the air this year for them. I'm excited to kind of see how they come out next in the next couple of games, just to see if they do carry that momentum on Saturday in two days on January 23rd, they play versus Florida at home. And then they go on the road against South Carolina on Wednesday, January 27th. So that'll be the next two games that we uh, have before we meet again next Thursday night when we record our episode. So it'll be interesting to see if we can at least, we got to win one of those games and to be able to kind of keep some momentum going. I would love to see them win both and go back to 500. I'm not saying that it's, that's a not exactly the easiest thing to do, but it would be, if you can see them come out and win those next two games and make it back to 500 in the SEC, it's a completely different season all over. And you have massive momentum running into the, the final stretch or the back half of the season midsection of the SEC schedule right there. You'll have that momentum going and you can really turn the schedule and turn the tide around. So I'm excited to see that. I'll be looking forward to meeting next week and going over all of the the changes coming up in that aspect of it in the next week. And then always changes coming in football and everything like that as well. So I'm excited to see what brings what we get next week. That kind of wraps up our episode this week. I enjoyed uh, sitting down with you. I know it was a little different this week without Kyle here, but I think we did a pretty good job by ourselves. And um, I'm excited to see what we have next week for everybody. We kind of pick last second to figure out what we got going on because there's always stuff changing in in college football and basketball. Everything is is changing so fluidly. So we kind of decide late. So I'm excited to see what we talk about next week as well. If y'all haven't, go back and listen to the episode we did last week with J.J. Frazier. It was a really cool sit down. I won't call it an interview because I know he said it was felt like more of a conversation, and I would agree on that too. It's really cool to sit down with a guy like that and actually have a full conversation about the state of the program that he played for a few years ago, kind of catch up with him and what he's got going on and everything over there too because he's playing in Italy right now. So it was just a really cool conversation. If y'all missed that, make sure you go back and check it out uh, in the meantime while you wait for our next episode coming out. So, Or we will have another episode ready to go probably the next Saturday. We try to have them released on Saturdays. But thank y'all for joining us. We will see y'all next week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Dogs Daily on Sports Illustrated. Take a second to subscribe, rate, review, and share with your friends and family. Feel free to reach out to the Dogs Daily crew on Twitter with any topics you'd like discussed. You can reach out to Jeremiah at Jeremiah underscore Stod 7, to Kyle at DK Fubderberg, and Jonathan at 22 underscore J-Man. Check back next week for a brand new episode. In the meantime, go dogs. Go dogs.